Welcome to the Poetic Resurrection Podcast, where we explore perceptions. How self-reflecting questions can give you a better understanding of self. I'm your host, Sonia Iris Lozada. Stay tuned. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Poetic Resurrection. Today, we are so excited to have Diana Rosen. She is an essayist, poet, and a flash writer. Welcome, Diana. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I love your shows. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. So nice to hear because when you put a lot of work into it, (laughs) you hope people like it. We were talking and... There's one poem that you have that's bus stop story. And that really hit me when I read it because it's such, it's a life event. So would you be happy to read that for us? Just happen to have it here with me. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) All right. This is called bus stop story. The first thing I noticed it's a fine line of beard outlining his strong chin. The beard goes up to the side of his shiny bald pate. He walks restlessly, rubbing a forefinger along his left temple. Next to me, another man poses the usual bus stop questions. Like the number 50 arrived. You've been here long. You work around here. The sound, the sound searing right through me. It starts with a hum and then goes higher and louder from ah. The man with the fine line beard flails his arms like a bird ready to soar. He whirls and whirls, then falls like a bounder, a boulder onto the street. He tumbled down as if on the side of the mountain. The questioner and I rushed to him. Still flailing, his right hand clenches my left wrist like a crushing vice. We turn them over now on their side, the questioner says, his cigarette dangling from his matter-of-fact mouth. No more putting them on their side and sticking dicks into their mouths to hold down their tongues. As we roll the man onto his back, his hand drops heavily from mine. His huge, shaking body becomes quiet. I've called the paramedics, said someone. They'll be here soon. And with that, the chartreuse truck rolls up and medics step out and into their official roles. The number 50 does arrive and I climb aboard. 
the questioner remains with the epileptic. I can't shake the sound or the feel of his grip. A few weeks later, the man with the fine line beard is back at my stop. I rub my left wrist. Our eyes do not meet. I love that story. When you take a part of life and just put it into a poem, it just seems so more significant, but yet it leaves us with more questions than answers. After you saw the guy at the bus stop, did you ever see him again after that? And did you ever speak about it? I never spoke about it to anybody, but I did see him that second time. He didn't notice me. And it's quite possible that because he was having an epileptic fit, he might not have recognized me or the man that was helping him or any of the other people that were uh, calling in for an emergency. I suspect, and I don't really know, but I guess if you're having a fit, you're just on another plane. You're just in another world. Uh, but I'm glad we were there to help him. Yeah. Now, where was this at? Where did this happen? At the time, I was living in uh, Northern California, and this was the San Rafael bus stop. And it's a big hub where maybe nine buses can park and pick up and drop off uh, passengers. So it was very active and very busy. And fortunately, I never had to deal with anything like that again. It was very yeah. dramatic. It, yeah, it is. I would think that, you know, you're, you get lost as to what should I do? You don't want someone to die right in front of you. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Now, I do have a um, question, and this is more on not so much the poetry, but I want to know your journey. How did you get into poetry? That's a great question. I think like a lot of people, when I was a child, I was read to, and probably my favorite was those 12 little girls in two straight lines and that incorrigible Madeline. I just love that. And I loved all of uh, Bemelman's books, the Babar series, but Madeline, I think I identified with her because she didn't want to deal with the rules. I learned my first lesson in being incorrigible by reading about Madeline. And then I think in high school, uh, we had this wonderful literature teacher and he chose an international book with all kinds of poetry from around the world. And interestingly enough, all of it was translated poetry. There wasn't anything that was original in English, so no British poetry and no American poetry. It was such an eye-opener to read translated poetry from Italy and Iran and Japan and China, and it really opened my eye to the, the diversity, the different styles of poetry, I was just fascinated by it. I still have the book. You know, that and, it's, there are certain ways that, and I know you mentioned this before, the phrasing. And 
the phrasing to me comes across from their belief system, how they think, and they switched the phrasing on it. You said something about a rose before you had mentioned to me offline. Oh, oh, yeah. I later learned poetry in England, Wordsworth, Tennyson, and then the European favorites of Byron, Shelley, and Keats. I was always kind of amused how they would describe a rose, how it's pretty and pastel and decorating an arbor or the maypole. But when you read about a rose, which is an international flower known to so many different countries, you read it about it in Hungarian and they talk about the rose oil scenting the skin and how it is a perfume. Or in South America, or even in Spain, a Spanish poet might talk about the petals of a rose opening up like the lips of their lover. You think, whoa, that's some flower getting around the world here. (laughs) And it really makes you, well, at least it made me feel a bit bit humble that somebody could look at something that we all can identify a rose and have so many different ways to identify it and describe it. And say in China, uh, uh, delicate rosebuds are used in tea or in hot water. And so that's a whole other dimension. So instead of smell or sight, you're tasting the nectar of the rose. And all of these things, of course, are wonderful fodder for poetry. And I think that's one of the pleasures, the internet and international uh, translations being so readily available, is we can learn how everybody else is describing the mundane and the ordinary as well as the spectacular. I hope it influences people, both the reader and the writer. Well, I think that's what's so wonderful about poetry. It can take something as simple as I went to the store and make it magical. You get the, all the senses come in, the smell, the, the feeling and everything in poetry. I'm glad you mentioned that because smell is really not something that used a lot in any kind of writing. It's such a jumping off point that if you describe onions or garlic sizzling in oil, everybody knows what that smells like. Yes. But here's something that you can describe how it smells, how it sounds in the oil on the pan, how the anticipation of the diners feel that they're going to have this delicious food. I always tell my students and anybody else that I'm counseling about writing, always think about your senses. Think about smell and taste and touch and sound because they're all part of what makes us so human. But sometimes we neglect those touchstones that are so vivid in enabling communication. I think it's just a wonderful tool. It is, you know, when I read something and you can take me there, I could 
feel it and smell it. And, and if it's food, taste it. Or even if it's something bad, it leaves like a bad taste in your mouth. If you could create that for me as right. a reader, I am hooked. You know, I am going to go back to that writer and keep reading more of their stuff. Right. I, I've uh, written, a, uh, read a, uh, several um, uh, novels that were written by people who, who either were actors or who took acting lessons as uh, a part of their toolkit. And one of the things that people learn in acting is how to inhabit a character or inhabit an animal or inhabit even something from nature like a tree. And we think they're a little absurd. You know, how can you pose like a tree or how can you feel the rain on your leaves? But what it does is it opens up our imagination. With that, we can find the word to describe something whether we are the tree or we're observing the tree. So I think learning a little bit about acting is a, a great uh, addition to the toolkit. I think so too. It's helped me with my writing. Oh, know. great. I'm yeah, glad to hear that. It, yes, it definitely has. And there was on the last time we talked, um, for those people listening, Diana and I have been trying to get together. <laughs> to do an interview for like the last two or three weeks, but internet problems on my end and I think both our ends, right? We were having internet. We did have a discussion before and there was a beautiful poem I just loved because it was about your father. And I don't know if you have it with you, but it's called Peaches. It was called- No, 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 close enough. It's uh, called Nectarines. Nectarines, okay. Right, and I- as it happens, a nectarine is a combination of a peach and a plum. This is called Nectarines. It's a heck of a fruit. Juicy, warm, broiled with goat cheese and honey. A must to bring my dad just to hear him laugh once again, reciting from his favorite Carl Reiner. Mel Brooks recording with the 2,000-year-old man, that velvet-caped, gravelly-voiced character who reveals he once dated Joan of Arc. He married hundreds of times. He had 42,000 children and not one came to visit him. I don't know but they should send a note, right? How you pop? It's true, my dad didn't date Joan of Arc, but he did date Pearl. His memories kept in a photo album with those black and white curvy edge corners shaping the photos pasted on dull gray pages and captioned me and Pearl. Pearl and me and my favorite, guess who? That mom had no compunctions about this totem of his life before us. 
said a lot about their marriage until death did them part. My stepmother helped dad buy a new suit to meet Pearl and her husband for lunch following her surprise phone call. You know what happened. Civil conversation, the ride home longer than to the restaurant, the scrapbook returned to the shelves. Dad didn't even reach a century, much less two millennia. Yet to the end, he smiled to see another buzzless peach, sweet nectar of summer, its smooth skin, not unlike that, with its signature blush of red. Oh, I still miss our calls. What's the secret to your long life, Reiner asked. Nectarines, I love that fruit. It's a heck of a fruit. I love that. It's such a beautiful memory of your dad. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, he always just used to just start laughing the moment <laughs> I pulled it out of my purse. And uh, I, I still have the albums. And every once in a while, I, I play them because it, it's a shared memory of a shared experience. And what better foundation for a poem? Yes. And you said you taught classes. And how beautiful is that to use that as an example to your students about that sensory memory and how it creates it such. It is. Yeah. I love to use uh, tangible things in classes too. A lot of times it's something younger kids don't quite know what they are, which makes it fun. I brought my mother's thimble. I brought old fashioned fountain pens, old photographs from the early 1900s. And everybody knows books and teapots or a certain glass or cup. And it's fascinating to see what tangible items do to trigger memories, whether somebody's older or younger. It's kind of wistful and sweet and sometimes shocking because people go all sorts of places when they see something. But it, it, it's also another lesson that, you know, if you're just stuck and you just don't know what to do or what to write about, or you think you've exhausted everything, just look around your house and something's going to trigger a memory, either of an event or an experience or some person. And that can get the juices rolling again. When people talk about their parents and their experiences and those little moments that people think are not a big deal are a big deal. The oh, fact that, that you listen to music together and you he loved nectarines, <laughs> it, you know, that's just it's those little things. I think people look for big things to write about or big things to happen in their life. But it's those little things that actually mean so much. And people, Absolutely. yeah, and people's idiosyncrasies. 
Those are a good one to well, write that, about. That, that's good enough for a novel. You do, yeah. <laughs> your syncretes are good for a novel. My father had a music store. He sold records and instruments. So music was always a part of our lives. And my sister and I uh, learned to play on the piano and flute and clarinet. So uh, that's a wonderful inheritance, so to speak, because even if you don't become a professional musician, learning to play an instrument helps you be a better audience member and appreciate music. And the other thing that my parents would do is they would bring recorded Broadway plays and invite people over to hear the play. And I always thought it was almost like a sacred place because all these people were so quiet listening to act one. And then there would be a slight break as they turned the record over to the other side for act two. But we'd listen to Arthur Miller's The Death of a Salesman and a few other plays. And it was like bringing the holy in where somebody who wrote something so profound and so beautiful and so American can touch a variety of people who gather in, a, in somebody's living room to listen to them. And the same thing can happen with uh, recorded poetry or just taking a poetry book off the shelf and reading to your parents or having your parents read to them. I think there's something so deliciously intimate and sweet and life-affirming about reading stories and poems to each other. It helped to connect in ways that are exquisite. When you buy a new musical, it's only the music now. You don't get the whole play. Oh, dear. That's not good. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly yeah. now you get the music. And that reminds me of the radio shows. Oh, yes. Yes. You know, where people actually used to gather around and look at a radio, but it was the actors and the stories and doing the sound effects as they recorded the story. And I think that's just, it does bring and people I, together. It, it brought people together. And also it really fostered imagination because if the sound that you heard on the radio may have sounded like a horse galloping down the road, but it was really somebody using a, a kettle drum and some sticks and, and the wildest things imaginable to make those sounds. But I think the other uh, trigger for imagination is listening to somebody tell a story. And you have to bring something to that as the audience member. So whether you're reading a poetry book or listening to a radio show or drama or comedy, you're bringing something to that that makes it complete because the writer tried to make it as perfectly, perfectly possible, but it need, the, the poet or the writer needs that audience, that reader or that person listening in on the radio. I think that's what's so much fun about podcasts because it's allowing a lot of people to imagine 
a little bit more of a story that they're writing or more about an event that's happening. And it's a really positive thing for imagination. It really is. And what I do like about podcasts is that you can hear from the average person and you can hear from poets that nobody knows and you can hear from famous poets. So it opens the doors for people to be able to listen to what is actually out there. You know, we're having a big problem now with books. People don't want you to read certain books. If I was told I couldn't read a book, that's the first book I'm going to go buy. Absolutely. Yes. (laughs) And uh, just recently, several libraries, I think uh, Brooklyn and a few others in New York, have offered to provide digital library cards to anyone who wants them to borrow any ebook that they have on their system so that nobody can be denied access. I think that's just thrilling. God bless librarians. Yes, exactly. Exactly. How many books have you written? Because I know that there's a few there. Uh, Well, this is uh, High Stakes and Expectations is my first poetry book. I've published a lot of poems in in a variety of journals. Before this, I was a nonfiction writer. So I wrote cookbooks and books about tea and ice cream and all kinds of books. I wrote about uh, 13 books on food and beverage. And I still continue to write about tea, spices and coffee for different uh, websites. So that's been a lot of fun. And I once had a newsletter on tea and that uh, became very popular and that's how I got my first book deal. So that was an adventure and a, a side trip that proved to be a lot of fun. Now you said, you also informed me that you were a journalist and you used to interview people. Can you tell us a little about that? Oh, absolutely. I wrote for several different newspapers and I wrote for a number of people who were corporate in corporate life where they wanted to have their CEOs and their top managers interviewed. They would call it legacy to create a certain history for their corporation. But I've also written the, the ordinary obit for Joe Blow down the street and and straight news and the opening of a new store, everything that was part of the uh, small city life I did for various newspapers. And it was great. It also gave me, I, w- I have a degree in journalism, and that is a good foundation for anything that you would write. Uh, we call it the five W's and H, who, what, where, when, why, and how. And I think when you get into fiction, uh, the why and the how becomes a lot more interesting. <laughs> and my father once asked me why I was Uh, writing fiction instead of journalism. And I said, well, this way, I can write the ending the way I want them to be. Very true. Sometimes news is not quite the way you want it to be. But in fiction, we have all this wonderful leeway to make things taller and shorter and bigger and safer and kinder and everything that we would like it to be. You have such a fascinating writing history. So if you have a degree in journalism, 
when did you get your first job writing? Because it seems like you've been writing your whole life. Two weeks after college graduation. There's were the days, kiddo. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. And I worked for a legal newspaper that was part of a, a chain of papers. And the editor uh, used to smooth all the legislatures, and this was in the state of Arizona, and keep certain legal advertising required. That was how we made the money with this legal, legal advertising. The stories were fantastic. Like, you've heard of the Miranda rule, where you have the right to be silent. Mm -hmm. Well, that was named for a man named Miranda, who was, he was a bad guy. He was not a nice guy. Oh, okay. But somebody didn't, didn't read him his rights. And so that rule was created. Within a couple of days after that rule went into effect, he was arrested for something else. So he may still be in jail for all I know. <laughs> but um, it was very exciting to be writing about something that was such a pivotal part of history. And a woman became the first Supreme Court justice in the state of Arizona. And there were a few other things that were hot news at that time. That made it very exciting and out of the ordinary. We expect car accidents and fires occur, and, and we tell people about the facts of that event. But when something actually changes history, that impacts you too, because you can say, oh, I was part of that time in history that that happened. And I told the world. Yes, and I didn't even know that's how that being Mirandized came into right, being. Right. And that, that rule has actually been adopted or adapted in many other countries that uh, you just can't bamboozle somebody that you've arrested. You have to be honest with them. So that's a whole, non, that's a whole nonfiction book right there, you know. Yes. What brought you to California? Were you originally from California? No, I grew up in Pennsylvania. And my family and I moved to Arizona when I was a teenager. And then after college, I said, I'm going out into the world. So I came to Los Angeles and I've been in California ever since. I lived a while in Northern California on a houseboat in Sausalito. I missed the 60s completely. I was busy, you know, making a living. But so I kind of recaptured the 60s in my 40s. So uh, that was a lot of fun. And actually, it was in Sausalito and Marin County that I was reintroduced to poetry. And I had been completely unaware of contemporary poets because of a time I, that I spent at a bookstore, working at a bookstore. I heard and and heard in person you know, Galway Cannell and Lucille Clifton, Sharon Old, Kim Adonisio, so many wonderful, wonderful, wonderful poets. And I thought, you know what, I think I can do this. So I took some classes and I was introduced to free writing where you hear or see a prompt and you just plunge right into it and you write. And I've been doing that ever since. It's just been a wonderful, exciting journey. I've loved it. And what a great place to see so many amazing poets. That was a 
so influential. Robert Haas, yeah, Robert Haas, Sajlo uh, Milos. It was such a fantastic opportunity because at that time, all the all the bookstores had book signings and book readings continuously. It was just I didn't know any better. I thought this was always the way it was or would be. I just benefited. It was the right time and the right place. It was just fantastic. Yes, because a lot of bookstores now will not even have readings unless you're a really well-known poet. That's true. That's yes. True. And, uh, but I think one of, the, one of the benefits of the pandemic, this thing we call Zoom and podcast evolution and this way we can get the word out and we can hear a diverse selection of poets and fiction writers it's thrilling and then a lot of these end up on YouTube so if you want to know what uh, Simborska or Milos sounded like in addition to their wonderful words you can hear them on YouTube and uh, you can hear Pulitzer Prize winners like um, mine went black, you know, but you could hear Gregory or you can hear anybody that uh, touches you. You can find them on uh, YouTube. So this is just such an exciting time for poetry because, first of all, more poetry is available in more venues and more methods. And I think for a lot of people, during the pandemic, they gravitated to poetry, just like people do when they are very, very happy or very, very sad. And a poem that describes a similar experience can comfort, can soothe, and can also give us courage to keep on moving. And that's very true because so much poetry the poet went through a hard time or they saw something that really clicks with the reader because then they know they're not alone. And I think as a poet, that's what we mostly hear is like, I thought I was alone until I read your poem. That's right. The uh, poet Ilya Kaminsky was born in Ukraine and he contacted a number of poet friends when the invasion began And he said, what can we do? And they all said, hear our poems, read our poems. And nothing had stopped anybody from writing them. And what the poet said was, give our poems another home, have other people listen to them and read them. So that's kind of uh, a hopeful way that the voices are not being stopped and we're finding different ways of making sure that throughout the world, people can hear the witness, the witness poem. And that gives me hope. I think that's a wonderful thing because we can rely on the poet much better than the news reporter in many situations to tell not just the factual truth, but the truths that we carry inside us. That's beautifully said. Beautifully said. Now I'm going to ask you, (laughs) 
Do you have one more poem you'd like to read for us? Okay. Well, I read a couple of longer poems, so maybe I'll write, I'll read a, uh, a short poem. Okay, this is called Study of an Orange. The basket of freshly picked oranges. A nest of hardened pockmarked yolks buffed to an acceptable smoothness. Sit docile, waiting, fragrant with that sweet acid burst that draws you to pull off one stubborn leaf-dotted stem. It's spicy spray tickling your nose. It rains on your beard. Smites your eyes. Will keep you tearing away at the thick skin, scraping off the soft, bitter pith to expose each plump section ready for your lips. Small, expectant lips, hidden under a snowy mustache. Wonderful lips that open slightly. Give me citrus kisses. My happy tongue licks into a smile. That's a very sensuous orange. Uh. <laughs> Everything, everything is available for the poet. Yes. You know, that's what I really love about poetry. Not loved, it's current. Is that you have permission to just be. It's subjective. You're either going to like it or not. But going in and writing it, you know that. You know that, you know, someone's going to like it. Someone's not going to like it. It's subjective, but you get to be open and you get to speak your mind in a very poetic way it's a challenge not always easy no it's not <laughs> and, and sometimes I think two or three times in the 20 years that I've been writing poetry something came out almost whole it was just pretty darn good just the way it is well three out of a gazillion poems is not a lot <laughs> so you keep tinkering and you keep playing with it. I think the, the adage is that nobody stops a poem. They just abandon it for the moment. I think about Walt Whitman continuously rewriting Leaves of Grass. In a way, that's kind of, it's kind of a metaphor for life. We're all rewriting our life, entering new chapters, trying new things, new experiences, and it's a good thing. But sometimes you do have to lead that poem and say, hey, try something else, move on. You know what, move I was on. just about to ask you that because I have gotten on some poems and I've written the poem and written the poem and written the poem. I'm like, you know what, I don't even like this poem anymore because you can visualize it, but for some reason it doesn't have the same energy when you write it. That's an interesting uh, word, energy, because there is something cosmic or something vibrant that's in a poem that works. 
sometimes tinkering with it too much can kill that vibrancy mm -hmm. and it just uh, doesn't work. So those are, those go in the bottom bottom shelf or the bottom drawer and you just uh, abandon them for a while. But uh, I think it's all, always good to, to experiment sometimes with form. So maybe you're doing a free write poem and it's just not working. Maybe you should try to reshape it into a villanelle or into a sonnet and take advantage of those limits and restrictions of form. And maybe it'll help you rethink your word choices. I'm perfectly fine killing all my darlings for the sake of this one perfect line or one perfect stanza. But sometimes people get so attached to something that they wrote. And the focus should be, does it work? Does it work in this particular poem? And if it works, okay. And if it doesn't, well, you can just keep that on a little scrap paper and write another poem from that one line. But exactly. I, I love to experiment with different forms. Right now I'm, I'm playing around with erasure poems where you take an article from a magazine or a book, one that you can mark up, because mm -hmm. uh, I'm not somebody who marks up books. But you take a magazine and you circle a bunch of words that you find interesting. And then you erase or black out all the other words. And what remains are the 10 or 12 interesting words. And it's often a poem. It just, or it, the, the uh, core of what could be a poem. And if you had sat down and told yourself, well, think of 12 words, you couldn't have imagined the 12 words that you see from that article. So that's a fun thing. And then the other uh, form I'm playing with a lot lately is uh, the haiku. And uh, I'm, I'm a traditionalist. I like to do the 757 format, although a lot of people have abandoned that. But it is kind of amazing how restrictions really feed your imagination. And if you recognize that you can only describe a flower in five words, you five really have to dig, or five syllables, you really have to dig deep and come up with something different. And uh, it, I love that. I love that challenge of, of trying to fit the words to the frame. Because eventually you, you get one or, one or two good ones. It's kind of a low stress way to find something that's okay. It may not be fabulous, but it's okay. Yeah. And then you can remind yourself, you know what? You did it before. You can do it again. So this is another technique to help you out. It's interesting with me with the five because I've, I've read many haikus. And so many of them almost come out like a quote. So hmm. you could, they come out, they seem like quotes. And I'm like, wait, this is haiku five, seven, five. Would it still be a haiku if it's not five, seven, five? Well, uh, I'm a cranky person about this. <laughs> I think it should be. Uh, I think it should be that way. But we're speaking in English, and you and I are writing in English. The 
way Japanese is spoken and written, not like English, but they created these 17 syllables that kind of go with the ideograms and, and Japanese characters that they use. And sometimes in, in Jap Japanese, they write a haiku in one long line, but it does have those 17 beats. So it, it's really kind of a conundrum because we're trying to fit those specific ways of pronouncing and speaking things from one language to another. So that's already a big challenge. So a lot of people in English, they're just doing, they're adhering to the observation of a haiku, but instead of uh, counting syllables, they'll just say, the black crow flies high. And just let you drop it right there. And uh, I, I'm of uh, two minds about it. I think some of it is interesting but I think that the advantage of, of more syllables is that you can tell more of a story. Or as in a lot of regular haiku from Basho and Isa, uh, there's this delightful sense of humor, this surprise ending. Robert Haas has translated a lot of them and he has a very droll sense of humor himself and so he's a really good match for translating these sort of like um, oh the spider weaves a web not to worry I take housekeeping very lightly or something <laughs> like that you know so it, you can say a whole a whole complete thought but do it gently and lightly and with a little wit and it doesn't have to be a whole big story. So that's fun. So before we leave, is there anything that you would like to address with the audience? Shall we assume that everybody reads poetry who listens in? If not, try something new. If you always read contemporary poets, try poets from the early 20th century or the 19th century. If you always read American poetry, try poets from Asia or Africa or Europe. Mix it up a lot. I live here in Los Angeles. We have a magnificent library system for both the city and the county. Each of them has incredible international literature departments. So you can find poems for every culture every creed, every country. And it's such an eye-opener to read these poems. And the music of these poems is so fabulous. I like to give a shout out, not just to the librarian, but to wonder wonderful translators who have taken the meaning and the music and the the joy and the sorrow from these fabulous poems and translated them back into our language. And it's just such a pleasure. And if you have a library card, you can check it out for free. That's always nice too. Yes. Now, how can people get a copy of your book? 
easy peasy, go to www.thetinypublisher.com and you can buy the book there. Or if they would like a signed copy from me, they can write Diana at thetinypublisher.com and I take Zelle, PayPal, checks, and cash. So How do you take uh, cash? <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, meet you for co- I'll meet you for coffee and we'll make a deal. <laughs> uh, it's called High Stakes and Expectations. And it, it only took me 20 years to put it together. So uh, I all? hope people will appreciate it. <laughs> That's right. Diana, you have been extremely lovely. I love your poems. People, please get a copy of her book. It would make a difference. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Been my pleasure. Many blessings. Thank you for listening to the Poetic Resurrection podcast. Poetic Resurrection is proud to present the soon-to-be-released book, the Inspire Me series, book one and two, which is available for pre-order at Amazon. Get your copy today. Poetic Resurrection podcast is available on Apple iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Audible, Google Music, Pandora, and most podcast platforms.